0: John 20, this is also our sermon text, pay pay attention to God's gospel. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We confess that we need your spirit to do this work in us. Help us to understand and believe. And then be willing to do your word on this Lord's Day and this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You're probably familiar with the practice of preaching on the so-called seven last words. Of Christ, a lot. I've I've never done it, but a lot of preachers do it during Holy Week or on Good Friday in particular. The seven last words of Christ are typically understood to be those words spoken by Jesus in in the hours leading up to his death on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Woman, behold your son. Today you will be with me in paradise. I thirst. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Finally, number seven, it is finished. But these things, important though they are, are not actually the final words of Christ spoken while he was on the earth. Nor are they necessarily the most important words. To say these are the last words of Jesus is to imply that he didn't rise from the dead, perhaps. It's also a failure to recognize that some of his most important sayings came after his crucifixion. In the last two chapters of John's Gospel, we have a series of final sayings, words spoken by Jesus after his resurrection. And to my mind these are even more significant. They lay greater claim to our attention than than the sayings more commonly thought of as the sayings the last sayings of Jesus. Not only that, but the what we find in John 20 and in John 21 no less than seven sayings on the lips of the resurrected Christ. Peace be with you. Chapter 20, verse 19. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Verse 21. Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 22. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Verse 27. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Verse 29. Feed my sheep. Chapter 21, verse 16. Follow me. Chapter 21, verse 19. Today, we'll look at the first three of these sayings. One Bible teacher has said that the first one, peace be with you, is the great bequest. Bequest means legacy. The great legacy, the great bequest. The second one, as the Father has sent me, So I send you, is the great commission. And the third one, receive the Holy Spirit, is the great consolation. We'll look at at each of these. Let's look at the great bequest first. The legacy, the great legacy that Christ has left his followers, believers. Peace be with you. Verses 19 and 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Thomas is not the only one to see and then believe. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. What is peace? To understand this passage, we've got to understand what peace is in the bible is it the agreement between nations to end hostilities is it societal order is it relational harmony well yes and no those are outworkings of of the peace of god but no, none of these ideas do justice to the shalom of That that Jesus is speaking of here in this passage. To the shalom that God gives. In the Bible, peace or shalom in the Hebrew means two things. And Jesus means both of them here. First, it means peace with God. Peace with God. And this peace is purchased by Christ. For us. On the cross. It's a a costly peace. Peace. We could say people are not at peace with God naturally. As we've been studying in the catechism, those of you who are going through the catechism know that we are at war with God. We're hostile toward God from conception. David gets at that in Psalm 51. Romans 5.1, though, says... Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that same, In that same passage, Paul, Paul talks about our enmity, our, that we are enemies with God. But while we were enemies, God came and made peace with us through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.20 says that through Christ, God reconciled all things, whether on earth or or in heaven, how? Making peace by the blood of his cross. The blood of Christ's cross has made a way for us to have peace with God. But thankfully, Christ also makes a way for us to have the peace of God. Okay, Sh- Shalom is not just the possession of peace with God, it's also possession of The peace of God. Peace with God means forgiveness of your sins. Peace with God means that your relationship with God has been restored. There's no longer separation there, but union. That's peace with God. The peace of God, on the other hand, hand, is God's own peace offered to you. It's his peace that he shares with. With you. Paul speaks of this peace in Philippians 4. I know Bobby was already thinking that. He's preaching through Philippians. In Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Bobby just preached on that a few weeks ago. The shalom Jesus is bestowing on his disciples here in verse 19 is peace with God through his cross and the peace of God through his presence, through his spirit. And this peace was good news to the disciples at this moment. It had been a a rough few days. It, the, certainly the most traumatic week of their lives. And now it's Sunday night, Easter evening, and they still have more questions than answers. They're agitated and confused. They, they locked themselves in a, in a house because they feared the Jews. Maybe what happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. You can only imagine the nervous and hushed conversations of this fearful band of Christ followers. Then suddenly, Jesus shows up. One second, he was not there. The next second, he is there. Miraculously, they don't know how. He's in their midst. And I want you to imagine the, the river's of peace running through their hearts at this moment, flooding their souls when the risen Jesus said, Peace be with you. As Jesus was bestowing on them the shalom of God, verse 20 says that, that the disciples were inspecting Jesus' body, his hands, his side, the wounds, just as Thomas will do a week from now, eight days from now, if you will. And they were glad to see him. They were glad to see their risen Lord. They were beginning to experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. This was the beginning of their ownership of that peace of God. The peace of God that he shares with his people. Jesus is giving it to them. He's accomplished their ability to have the peace with God and he's giving them peace of God. Do you know this peace? Do you possess it? Is it yours? Have you taken ownership of that peace that God gives to his people? You can't find it anywhere other than in Christ. You can't find it in the world. Most most of us, most Christians, are fully aware that peace with God comes through Christ alone. At least we know to confess that, and we believe it. But a lot of us make the mistake of thinking that the peace of God can be found outside of Christ, perhaps. In earthly things, in things that are passing away, even in, in good things, that are passing away. In worldly success and possessions and friendships and careers and retirements. And marriage and children and houses and creaturely comforts and conveniences. It's not all other things. Other things also threaten your peace. Life is full of difficulties. Many, many of, the, of the hearts and minds in this sanctuary this morning, are flooded with anxieties or potential anxieties, temptations to be anxious about something or some things. Some of you have recently shared your particular trials with me and and others. You're dealing with upsetting events, disappointments, loss of an old way of, of life, loss of close companions. Realization of that things are different than you thought they were at at work or in family or in relationships or at church. Some of you haven't shared with anyone the reasons why you, like, like these afraid disciples, these fearful disciples, why you are agitated or fearful or confused or sad. Yet Jesus offers peace to you in the midst of your difficulties. He meets you right where you are, and he can come suddenly. He can do that. He can come suddenly. And, and sometimes he shows up unannounced, as he does in verse 19. And you don't, you don't know how he got in. But he's blessing you and giving you peace unexpectedly. He does that. But he always shows up. He always shows up when you seek him, when you open the door and let him in. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The legacy of Christ, his great bequest, is the peace that he leaves behind for his people. He's gone. He left. But his peace remains. And it's a peace that he continues to give. There's an endless supply of this peace. It's a peace that you have when you are in Jesus. And he is in you, as that verse from Revelation 3 that I read. I come in to him and eat with him and he with me. It's a peace that you have when Christ is eating with you and you are eating with Christ in that sweet communion. Communion with God. On the heels of the great bequest is the Great Commission in verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is John's version of the Great Commission. The Great Commission, is it, we think of it as occurring at the end of Matthew 28. It's the, maybe the fullest one. It's the one that I say at the end of every service. But it occurs in some form five times in the New Testament. Once at the each At the end of each gospel, and then once at the beginning of the book of Acts. In each case, the emphasis is a little bit different. Matthew emphasizes Christ's authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Mark highlights the final judgment. Mark 16, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Luke presents the commission as the fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The opening chapter of Acts presents the Great Commission as a program for world evangelism. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In John, Jesus says, As the Father sent me, so I send you. And notice in verse 21, where I just read that from, if you have your Bibles open, in John 20, Look at verse 21. You'll see how John repeats the first saying, the the great bequest, the legacy of peace. Peace be with you. So it's, so it's, it's closely connected to the commission. He gives them peace again. He reiterates the peace. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is not accidental. There's a logic to this. He's not not using unnecessary words, repeating himself. Before you can effectively share God's peace with others, you must have God's peace yourself. There's a connection there. If you don't own the peace with God and the peace of God, you're not ready to be sent by Jesus to give others that peace. John Stott has some incisive comments on this verse. He says, We learn then that the church's very first need, before it can begin to engage in evangelism, is an experience and an assurance of Christ's peace. Peace of conscience through his death that banishes sin. Peace of mind through his resurrection that banishes doubt. Once we are glad that we have seen the Lord and once we have clearly recognized Him as our crucified and risen Savior, then nothing and no one will be able to silence us. What a great quote. But the most important connection in verse 21 is actually not the one between Christ's peace and Christ's commission. The emphasis in this verse is on the connection between God's commission of Christ and Christ's commission of us. Do you see that in verse 21? These words are more than just a command to evangelize, to share our faith. They also establish a pattern for us as we evangelize. The key words are as and also. As my Father has sent me, I also send you. Some translations say something like, as my Father has sent me, so, in the same way, I send, I am sending you. This means that our mission in the world, our mission to the world, is to be patterned on our Lord's. This doesn't mean that we do it everything Jesus did in exactly the same way he did it, right? There's, there's individual application here. But it does mean that Jesus was the first missionary and our labors are to be conducted generally like his, in imitation of him. So what, what's this mean specifically? Well, let's, let's reach back in John's gospel and think about this. First, it means that just as Jesus was sent into the world, so we are sent into the world. Do you remember where Jesus says that explicitly back in John 17 in that high priestly prayer? He's talking to his father and he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we have to read that into this condensed version in chapter 20. Our being sent is are be, is being sent into the world. James Boyce calls this the principle of incarnation. The principle of becoming one with those we would help. Okay, that's what Jesus did. He, it was literal incarnation, right? God became one of us. But the principle of incarnation applies to us. Boyce continues, think how significant it is that Jesus came into the world. It means that he did not stay in heaven, though he certainly could have. It means that he did not shout words of salvation to us from the safety of heaven's ramparts. Having determined to come down to us, he divested himself of his glory and appeared in humble form. He actually became human, just like us. He was born. He grew. He suffered. Eventually, he died. That's what it means to come into the world. Since this is the way Jesus came into the world, this is the way we also are to come into the world. We are to become one with those to whom we are sent. We are to identify with them. And if we do not, if we fail to carry out, if we we fail to identify in this way, we fail to carry out the Lord's commission. This is hitting home, isn't it? It certainly is with me. Most of us fall short precisely at this point, if we're honest. Most Reformed, most uh, evangelical churches struggle with this. We fall short at this point. We sometimes give in to the temptation to retreat from the world rather than infiltrating the world despite our triumphant eschatology, theology. We fail to enter into the world of those who need the peace that we have, that we've been given, that we have to offer Christ is sending us into the world, just as the Father sent him into the world. That's Jesus' comparison, not mine. Just Just as you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. Think about what that meant for Jesus to be sent into the world, what he had to give up, the sacrifices that he had to make, even before going to the cross. Are we willing to go where Jesus is sending us? Are we willing to be sent? John Stott, again, provides some keen comments on this verse. And this time it's even more convicting, at least to me. I believe that our failure to obey the implications of this command is the greatest weakness of evangelical Christians, Stott says. We do not identify. We believe so strongly and rightly in the proclamation, the preaching of the gospel, that we tend to proclaim our message from a distance. We sometimes appear like people who shout advice to drowning men from the safety of the seashore. We do not dive in to rescue them. We are afraid of getting wet. But Jesus Christ did not broadcast salvation from the sky. He visited us in great humility. Stott's point here is that we, it's it's a point that we have to grasp if we want to be faithful to our mission. True evangelism that's modeled on the ministry and evangelism of Jesus involves both proclamation and identification, we can call it. We can't just preach to those who don't have what we do, who need what we have. We must also identify with them, enter into their world, as Jesus did. One more Stott quote. And this is the most convicting of all. Frankly, this is my own greatest dilemma and problem as a minister. I love to preach the gospel to those who will listen to it. I find no greater joy in any ministerial activity than in the exposition of God's word, whether to believers or to unbelievers who come to the church, who come to church to hear it. But how are we to identify with the people who will not hear it? That is the problem. How can we become so one with secular men and women as Christ became one with us that we express and demonstrate our love for them and win a right to share with them the good news of Christ, end quote. I wish I had a, a good, straightforward answer to these questions, but I, but I don't. I'm aware of the problem, even my failure more than I am aware of, of the solution. But while I don't know all the answers, I do know what the text says. Our mission to the world is supposed to look like Christ's. Again, not in every single detail. Jesus' Jesus's life was not like any of ours in many, many ways. So it's going to be fleshed out differently, obviously. So we don't need to heap you know, guilt on ourselves for not being able to be you know, itinerant preachers and things like that. That's not the point I'm making. But our mission is supposed to look like Christ's. We are to go into the world as Christ did. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This means... Just just to be blunt, this means that we're not fully engaged in the Great Commission until we live with and among those to whom Jesus has sent us. Loving them, befriending them, knowing them, serving them, entering into their experiences. James Boyce puts a fine point on this. If we are going to go into the world as Christ was in the world, we are going to have to learn how to become friends with unbelievers and then work out the issues of life by their side. So the application of this point could easily degenerate into a guilt trip of some kind, right? Where the the preacher guilts the congregation, maybe himself even, as hard as he tries not to, uh, but that's, I, I don't want that for anybody, you or me. That's, that's not the point. That's not the goal. That's not a good application. You gain nothing by beating yourself up for your shortcomings in this area. You also do yourself no favor if you try to make up for, the, for, for past failures, perhaps, by putting unreasonable expectations and demands on yourself going forward. So what is the takeaway then? What, you know, we need to feel a certain amount of discomfort, maybe. We we could call it good kind of guilt that that urges us to repent. But what's the takeaway? How do we move forward? The work of evangelism, again, if we're imitating Jesus, the work of evangelism begins in the prayer closet. Jesus never would have been able to accomplish his mission to the world apart from constant communion with God. With his father. It was the father who led Jesus to the woman at the well. It was the father who brought Nicodemus to Jesus. Jesus, or God, I should say, the father brought certain people to Jesus at the right time and he sent Jesus to certain people at the right time. I've noticed in my own life when I, when I am seeking God for opportunities to share my faith he sends people to me and he sends me to people apart from anything that I could orchestrate. And when the Lord does this Our job, your job, my job is to enter into their experience and love them the way Jesus loves you, loves people. So how about this week we commit to spending time in prayer, seeking God, asking God to show us where he is sending us. Ask God this week to show you where he is sending you who he is sending you to, and what it looks like for you to enter into the lives of others, into the life of someone else who needs, the peace of, who needs peace with God and the peace of God. After giving the great commission, Jesus gives the great consolation in verses 22 and 23. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Verse 22 is sometimes called John's Pentecost. Jesus breathes the Spirit on them. It's sort of a a proto-Pentecost, but there's obviously more to come 50 days later. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, when He gives His Spirit in fullness to the church. And throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is, is, is sort of the climax of God's activity, His expression in the world. At the beginning of the original creation, you remember, in the very first pages of Scripture, the Spirit was hovering and directing God's actions in the world. And now here at the beginning of the new creation, the spirit is doing the same thing. Same spirit doing the same kind of thing in the new creation. At the beginning of the original creation, God breathed life into the first human. The, the first human that he had just created. He, he breathed life, the breath of life, the spirit of life, the ruach of life. At the beginning of the new creation, the God-man Jesus breathes new spiritual life into the new humanity that he is creating. See, God is, Jesus is in the place of God in that comparison because he is God. Jesus is creating a renewed human race, a new humanity, the spirit-filled church. And he's sending this new humanity... Out into the world, just as God sent the original, the first humans out into the world to take dominion, right? They had a job to do, a mission to accomplish. With this new humanity and this new creation, God, Jesus, the God-man, is sending us, the spirit-filled church, the new humanity, out into the world to tell people how to have God's peace through the forgiveness of, of their sins. Do you want to be part of God's mission to the world? You are. The last part of verse 23 there doesn't mean that Christians have the authority to in themselves to forgive sins. Only God has the authority in himself To forgive sins. But Christ is saying, that's a, you you know, we could preach a whole sermon and and talk about the difficulties and the the debates on verse 23. You know, God, Jesus says, if you forgive, then they're forgiven. If you retain the sins, they retain. But Christ is saying that he has given his church the keys of the kingdom. And in fact, most scholars believe that what he says here is the same kind of thing that he says in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 when he talks about the keys of the kingdom and, and you know, when you bind on earth has been bound in heaven. It's, that same, it's the same sermon, but he says it different ways, just like itinerant preachers do. They, same sermon, but, you know, different applications are worded differently. That, that's what's going on here, the same ideas. Are, are packed in to this this little verse. And these keys of the kingdom that, that Jesus gives his church include proclaiming to people that their sins are forgiven in Christ. Or negatively, that their sins have not been forgiven because they are outside of Christ, not in Christ. And, and the... The second part of each statement there in verse 23 is in the passive voice, okay? And what that means is that it is God is the one acting. It's it's a divine passive. God is the one doing, God is the one forgiving sins first, fundamentally. God is the one retaining sins First, fundamentally. So we could read verse 23 this way. If you forgive the sins of any, they have been forgiven by God. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained by God. Now, Jesus is obviously not saying that, that the church, his apostles, anyone is infallible when they, when they do this, right? That's not his, only God's, is infallible but he is sort of delegating a certain responsibility we could say delegated authority even to proclaim announce what is true in heaven what god has already done and said and to make it known publicly to communicate it whether for comfort or for the conviction of sins that is a role that jesus gives the church so Jesus isn't saying that our forgiveness, our decision that somebody is forgiven triggers God to forgive them. So what, what happens on earth, or in the church on earth, I'm going to honor it every time but some kind of, you know, no, that's not what's going on here. It works the other way actually. And that passive voice is important. God forgives and we recognize and proclaim what he has already done. So as you go into the world making disciples, you are to announce and explain in agreement with God the forgiveness that people have in Christ and the condemnation that people have outside of Christ. There's a corporate dimension to this, as I'm getting at. When the church baptizes someone or welcomes someone into membership, it recognizes publicly that this person's sins have been forgiven by God. This person is right with God. Okay? Again, it's not infallible, but it's, it's our job to do it as, as, a church, as the body of Christ. To recognize those who are in Christ. When the church excommunicates someone or refuses to welcome someone into membership because they're not following Christ. The church is making the claim that this person's sins have been retained by God. Okay, We're proclaiming something that we believe already to be true by God's standard. So what Jesus is talking about here is not just the job of the preacher on Sunday mornings, right? When, when, when he declares to you that you that your sins are forgiven after the confession of sins. That, that's certainly one application of what Jesus is getting at here. But the message of forgiveness in Christ and the message of condemnation outside of Christ is the message of the church. And Matthew 16 and 18 makes that abundantly clear that this is not limited to the apostles or even just to preacher, you know, ministers. It is... Delegated to the church, the body. And it's the message of every Christian in the body of Christ, too. It's the message that you must take to the world, into the world. It's the message that you must communicate to those whose lives you enter into. It's good news, it's a gracious message. It's not harsh. It's the truth. And there's mercy and grace and good news in it. The mission of God is afoot. Our God is a missionary God. And when he saves people, when he saves people, He makes them missionary Christians. If you don't want to be a missionary, then you don't want to be a Christian. God is sending you into the world. Jesus is sending you into the world. He's given you his peace. He's he's given you his spirit. He's breathed on you his spirit. And he's commissioned you as the Father commissioned him to go into the world. If you're a Christian, you're being sent into the world by your Savior and your Lord, by Christ. Are you ready and willing to go? Let's pray. Father, make us ready and willing to be sent. By Christ, even as he is sending us. Give us discernment, insight, clarity on what that means for each of us, what that means for us as a congregation, what that means for each family in the particulars, in the various stations of life that we find ourselves in. Help us to know how to be faithful to the commission that we've been given by Christ, to know where in this world we are to go into and how. We, we need your help. We need the wisdom that you give. We ask for it knowing that you give wisdom to those who lack it and those who ask for it. And we ask in the name of Jesus, amen.